The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. Good morning. My name is George Hinn, and I'm very grateful to be. This is a happy privilege for me and for my family to be standing before you as candidate for senior pastor and just to be preaching with you and worshiping with you uh, this morning. Whatever you feel about the Presbyterian process and how it picks pastoral leadership, and one thing I go away from this whole thing convinced of, and that is that Presbyterians have no moral objection to drinking wine at committee meetings. So, <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. But I'm grateful. Well, you have heard it said that when it all is done, at the end of life, Jesus Christ wants to look into each of our eyes and say to us, well done, well done. But how do you get from being well begun to being well done? When you've started the Christian life, you're off to a good start. What would God say to you in the middle point between beginning and ending? Our text this morning uh, tells us just that. So I would invite you to pull out the Pew Bible in front of you or the Bible that you brought and open up to Philippians chapter 1. Our text this morning is from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 1 verses 3 through 11. Listen along as I read. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you, constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you, because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to think this way about all of you, because you hold me in your heart. For all of you share in God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best so that in the day of Christ, you may be pure, blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. So how do you get from well begun to well done? If there ever were a church that would find out, if there ever were uh, a moment for Paul to share that, it would be now as he sits in prison wanting to affirm and encourage his beloved church in Philippi. We catch the Philippians at a midpoint. Notice that Paul has three days in mind. There's the first day, that day when he came into Philippi, bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to the European continent for the first time, finding women gathered beside the river. That day is the first day. And then there is today, the day of his writing, the day of the receipt of this letter as it's read in worship. The midpoint. And then there is the last day. The day that Paul calls 
The day of Jesus Christ. That's the day when all of Christ's work will be fulfilled, tied up and culminated. When Jesus himself will return to meet his church, his bride. You're at a midpoint. You're somewhere on the journey before beginning and finishing. And this church in Philippi had certainly begun well. We have a lot of Paul's correspondence to churches, none of which is as effusive with joy and gratitude and affirmation as this letter of Paul to the Philippians. Paul says, I long for you with the compassion of Jesus, really the bowels, the intestines of Jesus, someplace deep inside of him. He yearns to be rejoined with this community of faith, the Philippians. He loves them, and they have started well. I'm imagining that a lot of people felt about the church in Philippi the way people feel about the church here in Seattle, University Presbyterian Church. One of the words that has come to mind and the lips of people who have talked about you all over and over the last six months that I've been talking with your search committee is generous. You are a generous uh, people. I received many emails over the last couple of weeks, one of which came from one of our members, the church I serve down in Los Angeles, Bel Air Presbyterian Church, a gentleman by the name of David Trzinski. And David is homegrown UPC. He, he wanted to tell me about how 50 years ago this December, he had been baptized here uh, by Dr. David Cowie. And then 11 years later, 1969, he had stood in the chapel, actually, not here, uh, at his brother's wedding, as part of the wedding party, lit the candles and stood there as an 11-year-old child until he couldn't take it. Bob Munger was preaching, and his knees buckled. He fell over and dented the front pew with his forehead. <laughs> and then he got into uh, the youth program and was led by Ray Moore, his, the youth pastor at the time. He wanted me to know about how his faith grew and how relatively recently his father had passed away, and Earl Palmer had officiated his memorial and buried his dad. David Trudinzi, just one of thousands of stories around the world that have been touched by the generosity of a church, well begun, University Presbyterian Church. I mean, David now is denting pews down in Los Angeles. Actually, the chapel's been torn down, but the legacy remains of your witness to Christ in his life, and he's grateful. Good things like this don't happen easily. Willa Cather writes a novel called Death Comes for the Archbishop. And in that story, she tells a story of, of two French priests who are assigned to uh, 19th century New Mexico. And they're out in the wilds of New Mexico trying to preserve a little bit of contact with the homeland and French culture. So they cultivate a garden with the vegetables and the herbs that they would need for fine French cooking. And, and one day, one of them is in the kitchen all day. And by dinner time, he's produced a soup, a French soup. And these two priests, by the light of a candle, sit and enjoy this meal together. And one of them, the archbishop, Jean-Marie Latour, says to his brother, I am not depreciating your individual talent, Joseph. But when one thinks of it, a soup like this is not the work of one man. It is the result of a constantly refined tradition. There are nearly a thousand years of history in this soup. This church has begun well. You probably know as you've celebrated your 100th anniversary that 100 years ago on February 9th, 2009, down here on the Ave, just above a drugstore, 
First Presbyterian Church Seattle sent six Sunday school teachers over, right, to teach these six classes. That was the beginning, and a good beginning. The offering was only $1.22. We're hoping to do a little bit better today. (laughs) You may feel like a big spender by comparison with that. But you have begun well. But how do you get from well begun to well done? Surely Paul would share this if there were some secret to doing so. He loved this church so much. In fact, he does in verse 9. Not only does he share it, he says, I am on my knees praying that this will happen among you. Let's look at verse 9 again. Paul writes, And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight. Overflowing love. Paul prays for the heart. Notice that. I'm told that that Seattle is the safest place to have a heart attack. Have you heard that? I guess in 1974, 60 Minutes decided that it was so. I also read more recently in uh, uh, this January, the Journal of New England uh, Medicine said that hospitals are not the best place to have heart attacks. Do you know this? Actually, you're better off if you're in a casino or an airport. I guess (laughs) they don't want to lose a customer, right? What's the, uh, (laughs) the drift on in Roadhouse Casino up here the road? Maybe the best place to be for longevity. Uh, technical term for a heart attack, as you know, is acute myocardial infarction. Just fun to say. A-M-I. And what's happening there, you know, the heart is a muscle. And it needs this process of metabolism in order to get, have the energy, in order to keep pumping, to pump the heart through the system. When you die of a heart attack, you die of a paradox. What happens is the, the heart, whose responsibility is to pump oxygen-rich blood through the body's system, does not receive enough oxygen in order to continue performing that function. And, and so the muscle tissue begins to die. Well, you know what? Something similar can happen to love. Something similar can happen. The output can exceed the input. The demand on the human heart to love can be overwhelmed, can overwhelm the resources that it has to share. You know this. You know that love is fleeting and fragile and a delicate thing. We love things for a while. I mean, that hot new cell phone that you got, right? Some of you are iPhone users, and this is all you can talk about. But how long will that love last? Six months? You know, if you're Scottish, maybe three years. Uh, There's going to be a new phone, and it's going to be the new hot thing. We love people for a while. There's a bizarre kind of experience that uh, only a pastor has, and maybe a counselor as well. You have two people who come into your office. They're on this side of the wedding ceremony. They're uh, coming for premarital pastoral care. And I tell people, this is your least teachable moment right now. You know, you're not going to learn anything from me. Why? Because you believe you're the only couple since Adam and Eve that's truly been seized by love, L-O-V-E. You know, you have its essence running through your veins. And it's, a, it's fun to sit with those couples. But then the clock turns over, and in the next hour, I've got in my office two who've been married 15 years. And, and to hear them tell the story, there's no more evil person in the world than this spouse that I have to be stuck with. You know, the Pastor, you've got to see it, just the way I see it. And I sit there and say, what happened? How could someone who was so special to someone else 
lose love so quickly. We say, well, it's not love, George. You know, it's more infatuation. And we, we try to define it. I don't know that it's so important to define it because we all know what it is when we experience it. Love is that thing that, that makes marriage work. Love is that thing that makes the, uh, the, the relationship between a parent and child work. It's that thing that gets bumpy friendship through crises. It's that thing that calls us out of ourselves to care about somebody who's poor or lonely or confused or hopeless. I read, and maybe you saw this, that um, there were two uh, people who struck up a relationship on an internet chat room. They had, you know, their code names, Prince of Joy and Sweetie. And they began to IM back and forth and got to know each other and found in this relationship a quality of love that they had not yet known. And they said, well, let's meet, you know. Let's make it an actual, not a virtual relationship. So they said, well, here's what we'll do. We'll each go out and buy a single rose. And they assigned a meeting point. And when they saw each other, their plan had been, you know, that they would know who that one was. But when they actually did see each other, they realized immediately that this was their spouse. Each of them, unsatisfied with their marriage, had gone to the Internet in search of a relationship. And here's what Sweetie says. She says, the way this Prince of Joy spoke to me, the things he wrote, the tenderness in every expression was something I had never had in my marriage. And Prince of Joy says this, to be honest, I still find it hard to believe that the person, Sweetie, who wrote such wonderful things to me on the Internet is actually the same woman I married and who has not said a nice word to me for years. How can love weaken? We love things for a while. We love people for a while. We love God for a while. We know that white, hot fervor of first love for Jesus Christ when we come to faith. We're overwhelmed with gratitude for his gift of eternal life. And then somewhere along the way, that fragile disposition of the soul gives way to other things. And so John would receive a revelation, an apocalypse, a dream, a vision from God. And a message to the church at Ephesus in which he says, I know your good works. I know your steadfast perseverance. But this I have against you. You have lost the love that you had at first. So love is a fragile thing. It does not last by itself. It needs inputs. It must constantly be infused with something from beyond itself. Well, the Bible here says there's some kind of a, a love, there's some kind of an experience that's possible that overflows uh, more and more. And this is the thing that Paul says that is to get us from well begun to well done. It's a, it's a multiplication, it's an overflowing of love. How do we get that kind of love? Well, if, if you were to actually have an AMI or a heart attack, you'd see a physician, I hope, and... You know, she would tell you, among other things, she would say, you, you need to get some exercise, right? You need to hit the treadmill, go to the gym. And, and, and what you're doing there is you're trying to build the capacity of, of your cardiovascular system so that your heart gets more input, more comes in to your heart. Well, and, and you have to do something similar spiritually as well. You need to take your love to the gym. Paul talks about this love as an overflowing love in verse 9. 
The word he uses for overflow is, it means to have more than you need. More love than you know what to do with. Can you imagine? He's saying, I want you to have so much love pouring into your life that it just bubbles over and spills on the floor. There's wasted love on the floor here, people. You know, there's love overflowing. We don't know what to do with it. There are two inputs. In verse 9, he tells us, love overflows more and more with knowledge and full insight. Knowledge and full insight. If you want to work out your love, friends, this is the way to do it. First input, knowledge. Love overflows with knowledge. Wow, there are a lot of things to know in life. Book knowledge. I mean, you can know the speed of light. You, know, you can know that the Huskies are playing Stanford next weekend. You know, you can know the new latest tax laws. You can know the schedule of the co-ed across the quad. That's kind of attractive, right? There's a lot of stuff to know. They tell me that Seattle's the best educated uh, city in America. So there's a lot that we know. Uh, Paul's not talking about knowledge in general here. He uses knowledge in the sense, the Israelite sense, the Hebrew sense. Covenant knowledge, knowledge in the biblical sense. Rudolf Boltman, the theologian, says this knowledge is, this word knowledge is for Paul almost a technical term for the decisive knowledge of God that comes from conversion to Jesus Christ. That's the knowledge that feeds love. Why does it feed love? Well, knowledge of Jesus Christ motivates love. You're going to work out at the gym. One thing you're going to have to have for starters is motivation. You need that. Well, how does love, how does knowledge of Jesus Christ motivate love? Three things. First, when our knowledge of Jesus grows, we're fired up by his love for us. That he loves us. Love is not an invented thing. It's a response. He said, brothers, you don't love first. We love because he first loved us. This summer, I took a team of people down to Skid Row. I know you all invented Skid Row, but we have our version down in Los Angeles. It's a rather big one, actually. And adjacent to it is the largest jail in the world. It's called Men's Central Jail. 6,000 men in a very small space. And we visited a gentleman there by the name of Ed Welch. Ed has spent most of his life in prison, covered with tattoos. They say he grew up, quote, in the system. Ed, when he was a boy, was abused by his father. Never had an experience of love at home. Destitute for love. In fact, Ed is honest enough to say one day he tried to take his father's life. He had a gun in his hand and put it in his father's face and pulled the trigger. Luckily, the gun was empty. But for a lot of other reasons... Ed was in and out of jail, in Men's Central Jail, I think maybe for 35 years. But when we met Ed down there at the jail, he was a free man. He was free to come and go. He'd gotten married. Something dramatic had, had in his, happened in his life. Somewhere along the way, Ed had come across someone who talked to him about Jesus Christ. Ed, there's somebody who has died for your sins who took the rap that you deserve so that you could walk free. And that experience of love in Jesus Christ so gripped Ed Welch's heart that he said, I am going back to prison voluntarily because this love is too great to hold on to. I've got to share it. I've got to experience it. I've got to imitate it. 
That's motivation. When our knowledge of Jesus grows, we get fired up by his love for us. When our knowledge of Jesus Christ grows, we get fired up by his love for others. Jesus says, when you see those who are thirsty, when you see those who are hungry, when you see those who are sick or in prison and you offer them love, you do as much for me. You see, people are hard to love. I don't know if you've noticed that yet. They say ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. But, you know, they're just hard to love. And yet, when you love somebody in Jesus' name, you can give that love to Jesus. One of our teammates was walking down the street in Skid Row and got hit by a club, psychiatric patient outside of a psychiatric shelter. She reached up and smacked him, swelled up. But, you know, there was a smile on his face. Not because he's a sadist or masochist or doesn't like pain, but it was because he knows he endured that hard-to-love person because of Jesus' love. In offering love to her, he was offering love to his Savior, Jesus Christ. Motivates us. Motivates us finally, not just his love for us but or for others, but his love through us. Jesus says, don't be confused. You're just a branch, right? And I'm the vine. Abide in me. Everyone who abides in me will bear much fruit. Paul uses that word fruit. It's translated in verse 11 here as harvest. It's the fruit of righteousness. Elsewhere, he'll talk about the fruit of the Spirit. And, and, and first among equals is love. Love. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not something we produce. You never hear a tree going, Give me apples. Straining, right? It just happens. It just happens naturally. And so fruit comes through the Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit of God is waiting for you to give permission for that fruit to come into your life, to love through you. Well, that's the first input, knowledge. Love overflows when our knowledge of Jesus Christ, our relationship with Him, our interaction with Him is enriched and grows and deepens. But there's another thing. It's not enough just to have motivation at the gym. We also have to have skill. We have to know what we're doing. And so we see here the second input in verse 9 is, uh, Paul calls it full insight. Love overflows uh, with insight. What does he mean by insight? Well, this word in the Greek actually occurs only here in the whole of New Testament. We do find it, however, in the Old Testament, do you know that the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but it was translated very early on into Greek? And this word inside is used 27 times there, 22 of them in the book of Proverbs. See, this is a wisdom word, insight. I, I say wisdom is truth applied to life, truth working its way out in good decisions. So love has to work its way out in good decisions as well. It has to, it has to apply to the field of life. It has to be engaged with real uh, people. Now, somewhere along the way, you and I began to think, I, I think, that love is natural, right? That it just comes naturally. And uh, I'm not a golfer, really, per se. And I look at TV and I see Tiger Woods and I think that's natural as well. That's a very natural swing. Hand me a golf club. And everybody is running for the trees, right? It's not pretty at all. Something that looks natural oftentimes has to be cultivated. We have to train it. it, it, it requ- it's a skill. Henry Ford, uh, his first plant in Dearborn, Michigan, 
was powered by generators that had been made by a gentleman named Charlie Steinmetz. Charlie Steinmetz, after a number of years, retired, and one day the generators failed. There was a problem. Ford and all his technicians couldn't figure out how to fix it. So desperate, Ford sends a telegram to his friend Charlie and says, hey, will you come out of retirement and help us with these generators? And Steinmetz agrees and comes and shows up, and you know, he pulls a lever, he kind of jiggles a knob and presses a couple of buttons, and two hours later, the generators fire up. Well, Ford got a bill a couple weeks later for $10,000. And Ford goes, Charlie, give me a break, a little bit of tinkering around, $10,000? So Charlie amends the bill. He says, tinkering around, $100. Knowing where to tinker, $9,900. <laughs> It takes some skill. <laughs> if love didn't take skill, then Paul wouldn't have to take three verses out of that great chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13. You know, the, you know the chapter, but he has to say, look, here's what love is not. It's not envious. It's not boastful. It doesn't rejoice in wrong. I mean, if love were natural, why would parenting look the way it does today? Why does, would marriage look the way it so often does? It's not natural. It's supernatural. And it needs to be cultivated over time. Well, how do you gain this insight? How, how do you gain this skill uh, of love? It's really simple. And you're going to say, I can't believe people pay these people to say stuff like this. But it's really simple. It's just do it. Just do, just act on love. Give it a try. Okay, even today. Love. Charles Williams writes a book called Descent into Hell. And in that story, there's a character who loves a woman from afar. But he's never bold enough to actually materialize his love, to act on it. And uh, as a result of that, he develops this sort of fantasy relationship with her. He's got an imaginary uh, woman in his mind. And in, in his fantasy, she responds to him and he responds to her. They spend time together. They chat. They embrace but the descent into hell is the fact that this fantasy begins to wrap a selfish dream around his heart. And love unexpressed becomes a dangerous, deadly thing uh, for this character. We have to act on love. Hebrews 5.14 uses a word very similar to this word insight. In it, the writer says, but solid food is for the mature, those who are complete. Uh, for those faculties, and there's the word, those faculties have been trained by practice to distinguish good from evil. See, our love needs to be trained uh, by practice. It needs field experience. Well, these are the two inputs for love. Knowledge, relationship with Jesus Christ, and, and, and full insight. Applying that love to life, sharing it with people. Paul says, I pray that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight. You see, you need both inputs. The, the pietist is very strong in knowledge of God, but rather weak in application. Oh, the, the activist is very strong in effective relationships, skilled to help people, but rather weak in knowledge of God, understanding how their love is a part of a bigger story in which God is acting lovingly in the whole of creation. Need them both together. This week at the UCLA Medical Center, there were two patients lying side by side on two gurneys. They actually carpooled in together. And there they lay. One of those patients was a man, 45 years old. He was married. Uh, he is married. 
He has two children, but he has 8% kidney function. He's approaching his last day very, very quickly. The other person on the other gurney is a woman. She's 35 years old, and life hasn't treated her well. It's been hard. In fact, most recently and very unexpectedly, she found herself living on the streets. Her boyfriend broke up with her. She had no job, no place to live. Found herself in a homeless shelter run by Christians. And one day, when a group of people from a church came down to serve just a meal at this homeless shelter, they met this woman, and they reached out to her, and they said, why don't you come and worship in our church on Sunday? She didn't know why, but she took the invitation seriously, and she came. In that congregation, she began to hear that there is one who gave his very self to love her. That there is one who did not think equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, humble, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So moved by that love, she joined into the worship of this God, Jesus Christ. One day in the sanctuary, she sat there, she heard the pastoral prayers we just prayed a few moments ago. And there the pastor mentioned somebody who uh, was having a kidney problem and needed a donor. They could not find a donor. It was a rare match. And she said to herself, well, I'm not working now. I have some time. I'm in good health. And I have been so well loved that I want to love somebody else as well. So she said, examine me. And it turned out, in God's way, when you know it, she's the perfect match for this man. And so there they lay, side by side, operation at 6.30 and 8.30. She's got tears going down her cheeks, bawling. Is she afraid? Is this the first time she's ever had surgery? Is she worried about what it would look like to live with one kidney? No, these are tears of joy streaming down her face that she has an opportunity to love. There's a lot of cynicism today about love, whether we can really make a difference in a world with so much need. Let me tell you a final story. The Lauren Isley story about a man who's walking down a beach one morning. The sun is coming up and he sees in front of him a child, a boy. He's picking something up and throwing it into the ocean. As the man approaches, he realizes this child is taking starfish and tossing them into the sea. And he says to him, son, what are you doing? And the boy says, well, the, the tide is going out and the sun is coming up. These starfish are going to dry out and die. And the man said, that's sweet. But you know, there are hundreds of starfish on this beach. You can't make a difference, son. He bends over and picks up a starfish and throws it out in the ocean. He says, for that one, I just made all the difference in the world. Paul's not cynical about the future. He's got great hope in his heart. He says, I am confident of this thing that he who began a good work among you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Who started that good work? Not Paul. He who. Next time you're working out, that's, that's your assignment. He who. Breathe those words. He who began a good work in you. He who came from heaven to the cross. He who died and rose again. He who walks among the Philippians as Paul prays for them. And he who started a good work here at UPC. He who walks among us this morning and ministers to us wherever we are, ministering his love. He will bring it to completion. He will bring love overflowing 
into this community. That's the hope for UPC. It's not multimedia worship. It's not a strategic plan. It's not a messianic figure of a pastor. It's a community that's set on fire by the love of Jesus Christ and releases that energy into the world. Let's pray. Risen Savior Jesus Christ, we sit this morning in awe of your love and grace for us. Who are we? You have taken us into your very heart. And with us, you pass through the grave and climb to the heights of heaven. You've set us free now. We, we can love. Grant that our love might overflow more and more in knowledge and full insight. That someday when we come to that last day, we may hear you say, well done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.